We are Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. I'm the founder of Pro Cannabis Media, and I'm always fascinated to meet new people in the cannabis industry, especially scientists. And we have two scientists with us that are both involved with MCR Labs, which is a lab located in Framingham, Massachusetts. I think as people have followed my show over the last few years, I do come from the Boston area. It's one of the reasons why I have the Zakem Bridge behind me. And we have Dan Hughes and Scott Churchill alongside from MCR. So both Dan and Scott, thank you so much uh, for coming into this studio of sorts. Uh, we all get used to this whole Zoom communication thing during COVID-19, I guess, right? Thank you, Jimmy. Yes. All right. So uh, Scott is to my left, if you are watching, or right. But basically, we're on the same page. And then below us is Dan. So that's the best way to do it. I'll also put up little lower third identifiers for you guys, too, so people know who we're talking to. And on occasion, I'll punch you up full so that everybody can... Uh, hear who's talking and who's not. But I, I am going to start with Scott Churchill, who's the Director of Scientific Operations at MCR Labs. So obviously, the first question I've got to ask you, Scott, is what do you do at MCR Labs in that capacity? I have a, a lot of responsibilities. I was I was actually, um, you know, on board prior to us having a, a company. So I've, I've worn a number of hats and, and the legacy of that is that I sometimes um, have to weigh in on a variety of different aspects, different departments. But my primary focus is on making sure that the um, data that uh, we produce is the highest quality data that could be made available and that it's scientifically defensible. Above and beyond that, I have to continuously sharpen the blade, be aware of what's out there, how we can expand it, how we can leverage new technologies uh, better, faster, more, that sort of thing, um, higher, higher accuracy, everything. Gotcha. And, and Dan Hughes, your title is Scientific Operations Manager. Can you explain a little bit about what you do at MCR Labs in that capacity? Yeah, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm essentially Scott's avatar. You know, I do everything that he does. And I try to do it as well as him. Um, I'm kind of the boots on the ground guy. So, you know, I'm in there working with the machines, making sure they still run, uh, kind of echoing what Scott said. You know, we want to have the most precise, most defensible data um, nationwide, hopefully. Um, and I also pursue a number of, you know, research and development projects outside compliance testing, uh, such as the search for uh, additional cannabinoids or um, different technologies we can use to measure analytes of interest better. There you go. And, and this is one of the most fascinating things about this um, whole industry is we're talking about a plant. We're talking about a weed. We're talking about something that you can grow out of the ground and I'm always amazed now that you can actually dictate the DNA of this plant to be more of a sativa or indica leaning uh, plant. And now I find out that those two words really, you know, are interchangeable because it always affects one person differently than another. Um, so, uh, Scott, I, I'm going to give you first crack at this. Uh, first of all, explain the difference between a sativa strain and an indica strain? Well, 
um, you know, could be a matter of semantics. Um, and, and to your point earlier, um, if you look at the dogs today we have, the Chihuahua and the Great Dane, they were all selectively bred from wild dogs like wolves. So our ability to um, influence the, the genetic lineage progeny of, um, of a plant isn't that surprising when you look at a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. Um, that's, that's not a good analogy for sativa and indica. What people are trying to say with those terms is they're trying to describe the expected experience based on the, um, the appearance of the plant and its lineage. So um, when they say indica dominant, they mean that it has um, qualities associated with um, strains that come from um, the Afghanistan region as compared to the sativa, which come from more um, equatorial regions. They have appearance differences in terms of how they grow, um, how long it takes for them to flower. And the, the general consensus on it is that sativas are, you know, energizing and indicas are relaxing. Very good. Uh, Dan, one of the things that um, uh, Scott talked about, and he mentioned cannabinoids and the amount of chemicals. Another thing that fascinates me is um, THC, THCA, CBD, CBG, CBN, ABC, XYZ. I mean, there's so many uh, cannabinoids that are already have been discovered in this plant. And yet there's still so many more that are still out there. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. No, I think an estimate is there's over 100 cannabinoids in the plant. Um, we essentially have, know about maybe 20 or so, um, in America at least. So, you know, I'm highly interested in what these other cannabinoids are, what they do. Uh, we have some of those cannabinoids aren't well studied that we do know about, like, for example, cannabis cyclol, um, cannabis citran. We've discovered those cannabinoids. We know the structure, but we don't have a good idea of how they affect human physiology. And speaking of human physiology, um, isn't it true that every human and every mammal that has an endocannabinoid system in us all, what might affect you will have different effects on what it might affect me or Chris or, or Dan. Um, everybody has a different metabolism. Everybody has a different um, tolerance for THC-based cannabis sativa. Um, that's gotta be challenging uh, onto itself. Uh, I'm going to let uh, Scott go first here. Okay, yeah, it, it is a big challenge. Um, there are a lot of uh, physiological differences in terms of how um, cannabis uh, affects people. Um, it it really it really is um, fortunate that it is. It, it's got a low toxicity and uh, low um, safety. Uh, threat profile because it's really it's one of the things that that variation forces people to do is it forces them to experiment with different kinds, different dosage forms, and different dosage amounts. If you're if you're attempting to relieve pain, um, it's pretty easy to know when you've accomplished that and minimize the unwanted side effects. But when you're trying to enjoy it as a, a consumer of recreational it's more of an exploration, like uh, choosing different craft beers or different wines uh, to see what, see what you like. But it is very complicated. And um, outside of how THC interacts with you, 
the bigger question is even more frightening is the hundreds and hundreds of chemical constituents that might actually combine for what they call either an entourage or a symphonic effect. Hey, I know what the entourage effect is, okay? I'm very proud. It was one of the first things I learned, um, which kind of lends me to the next question about hemp. You guys are not involved with hemp at all. And for what I found out re recently is that you actually have a sister company in Pennsylvania that handles all the hemp testing. Is that, is that right? And, and hemp is, is defined as a cannabis sativa plant with under 0.03% THC. Um, that entourage effect is, is what is debated a lot. Um, in your, and again, I'm, and if you're not comfortable with any of these questions, just let me know if it's not your realm. But I'm always amazed because when I talk to a lot of doctors or cannabis specifically, these physicians, they do think that you need a low dose of THC in order to get the most effect from that CBD. So they really do believe in the entourage effect. Um, is there a magic number? Or again, does it go back to everybody's different? You guys, you could fight over who wants to answer this one. I'll let you take it if you want it, Dan. <clears> That's all you, Scott. Okay, um, so there are people who have attempted to conduct studies to find those magic ratios. Um, and, you know, I've seen, I've seen evidence to suggest that Different ratios have different um, different effects for different populations. So I think it depends on, like you mentioned, the individual and what the therapeutic um, target is. So if you're trying to treat, um, you know, uh, some kind of neurological condition, there might be a different ratio than if you're trying to fight chronic pain. Gotcha. And it's all about chronic pain with me. Um, I, I, I don't like to do this too often, but I have these horrible arthritic fingers. And, you know, let's just, let's not get me talking about my body. Let's just say I do use medicinal cannabis to help me deal with my chronic pain and especially help me sleep at night. You know, sleep is a challenge on so many people's radars. Um, so many people suffer from insomnia. Um, how do you guys, you're just testing for chemicals. You don't really look at one strain or another, or is that something you do? Uh, Dan, can you uh, take me to the process, through the process of what a typical day is of testing for you guys? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we offer the full suite of compliance testing that's mandated by Massachusetts. So um, if anybody wants to put a product on the shelf, it has to pass these tests. Um, so a sample comes in, it comes in with certain test codes that it needs to pass to be sold on the market. Uh, we take those test codes, we, we run them for their uh, respective tests. We do um, do some monitoring of the data by strain um, to try to find trends. Uh, we also do that for historical analysis for the clients. So, you know, they can kind of get an idea if they've changed something in their process, uh, what kind of effect that has. And uh, that's very useful these days as we're discovering these new cannabinoids. Uh, growers have the freedom to, you know, experiment with their grow conditions and try to induce a higher uh, amount of these rare cannabinoids. And we can kind of figure out what they're doing. Okay, you mentioned indoor versus outdoor. Can you actually tell by looking at the plant or the bud that you're testing if it came from an indoor facility versus an outdoor facility? Uh-oh, I see a smirk on Scott's face. 
Is that a stupid question? Not at all. Uh, the way I would answer it is, um, I think some people definitely can. I don't know that I could reliably. I'm not as familiar with connecting the appearance to the cultivation behind it. Um, but I do know some people that are very enthusiastic and uh, they will claim that they can tell you, tell, you know, the growers, they're very enthusiastic. I like the way you, you said that. Uh, and I, I have learned that there are different types doing different things in this industry. Um, and, you know, obviously there are biases and all that neat stuff, but uh, that, that's pretty fascinating unto itself. Um, Dan, what's the strangest thing you've found in, uh, in your testing? I mean, obviously you guys are looking for pesticides. You're looking for the different uh, cannabinoids that are in them. And I'm guessing you find terpenes too in your testing? So what's the, what's the strangest thing you found? Um, I wouldn't, I can't really say we found anything very strange. Uh, most of our tests are targeted towards the specific analytes. We rarely screen outside of our targeted analysis. Um, we've seen some strange samples get submitted to us where, you know, I can't really imagine, um, what their potential use would be. <laughs> For example, a, a gummy bear uh, covered with coffee. Uh, that was a, I'm not sure who, who wants to consume something like that. That's probably the strangest thing I've seen. That sounds like an oops uh, on the testing thing, right? More than anything else. Um, how do you guys when, and I, I've talked to owners of dispensaries and I've talked to them about compliance and testing and how do you know that like, when you look at a, an edible, you mentioned a gummy, um, that one part of the gummy is, has equal amounts of THC or CBD in it than the other side of the gummy? And I guess you could use a, a brownie as an example too. How do you know that it's the batch reflects the whole, the whole product? So um, we can't say how reflective a sample is to the greater population. We don't have control over the statistical sampling approach that is taken, yeah. but Dan can talk to you about how we ensure that a, our analysis is representative of the sample. That's been a big part of his work lately. Go ahead, Dan. And homogeneity is a concern, so you want to be able to get a product and expect a certain experience. Uh, if the analyte or if uh, THC isn't evenly distributed, you can't get guarantee that. So some of my um, experiments lately have involved going after homogeneity specifically. Um, we have found that it, it can be a problem, but we often work together with the client to arrive at a homogenous sample. So we'll help them um, with design of experiment. Uh, we'll help them dial in their parameters so that they have a nice consistent product at the end of the day. Yeah, one, one thing I've learned about MCR Labs is you don't have to be a dispensary or a licensed dispensary to come and get your stuff tested. It could be homegrown, and in Massachusetts, you know, each adult can roll, uh, can roll, can grow uh, six plants, um, two in each dwelling if you have two adults. So there's quite a few people who are out there that are experimenting with homegrown products. They can bring those homegrown products to you guys to get tested, correct? Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah, and um, I'm guessing there's a nominal. I think I think I heard a fifty dollar fee, but I don't know if that's accurate or not. Do you guys know what the fee is for that? I think for a cannabinoid screen, it's fifty dollars. But I'll be honest, it's been a long time since I've been involved in that part of it. 
That's all right. I appreciate your honesty. I, I just find it it's a great service, and especially for people who are out there who are learning how to grow. Um, they'd like to find out exactly what they're growing. Um, and, and so, you know, they can share or they know exactly what they're putting in their own system. I mean, it just makes sense to me. Um, the regulations and the compliance that you guys are under, um, do you, how, how many, how often are you like inspected by the, the weed police? <laughs> I think we, I, I think we're under constant scrutiny, obviously. Um, we have annual um, relicensing and um, we have, we have ISO audits every year. One is a surveillance audit. One is a, uh, a recertification audit. And um, throughout that, we have to do proficiency testing where people send us blind samples and we, they know what the values are and we have to get a certain value within. And then, yeah, the, um, you know, if we add a van, um, typically the CCC will come out and inspect it. Um, so I think it's an ongoing basis, um, but I don't know if they've developed like a routine schedule that I'm aware of. But um, we're, we're frequently in contact with them, uh, close contact. It's, a, it's important that everybody stay compliant and, and um, stay on the same page. Dan, you on the same page on that one too? Oh, yeah. I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> um, let's talk about COVID-19 just for a second. You know, uh, before we started rolling, I was talking about an interview that um, my usual co-host, Kurt Dalton, and I had with a doctor out of the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, ca uh, Canada. First off, Canada is a federally legal, it's a federally legal substance in Canada. It is not in the United States. That has impacted research to the point now where a Scottsdale lab, I believe, is suing the United States to get more access to research. Um, how important is that research? And as scientists, isn't this what drives you? Yeah, um, I'll start this one off and um, Scott can pick up on anything I left off. I think it's very important. One of the things that we're uh, constantly hamstrung by is, um, for example, we can't have a certified reference material over a concentration of one milligram per milliliter. And some of the cannabinoids we want to get in research are restricted to having a DEA license. Uh, getting a DEA license isn't easy. We don't have one. So we don't even have access to some of the materials we would need to do further research. Um, God, do you have any, uh, anything to add to that? Right, yeah, so from an analytical testing for compliance, there, there's a number of problems that we face in terms of national standards, availability of the certified reference material in matrix, matrix that's um, you know certified to be free of certain things. So, there's some challenges that we wouldn't otherwise face, but as a nation and in terms of <clears throat> our ability to, and I'm not talking about my ability and Dan's ability, but like as the, the nation's ability to uh, bring to bear the therapeutic potential of the plant, that is completely hamstrung. It's left to the rest of the world to do this. And, and we've got one of the biggest, um, you know, baddest pharmaceutical industries in the world. So it's, it's really, um, it's really um, a challenge, yeah. a huge challenge. And, and frustrating, I'm, I'm sure, as well. Uh, the study I was talking to had to do with uh, treating or at least looking at the impact of cannabis treatment on COVID-19. Um, 
obviously it was done with 3D modeling. It was not done with humans. It was not done with real uh, cannabis, sativa plants. Uh, but again, it was something out there. Um, what, what's had the, been the biggest impact for you guys in research or any at all on the COVID other than working out of your houses, I guess? Yeah, it's been a, a huge challenge. Um, normally I would have, uh, uh, as opposed to a, a full staff, I have 25% of my staff in the lab at any given time because we've significantly reduced the amount of people in the lab to avoid uh, infection. So it's very hard to make progress. We have a number of initiatives that we're trying to move forward and uh, COVID has certainly slowed us down. But I would uh, say that a small bragging point of ours is we came up with a very good system to, uh, you know, limit people's interactions with each other, uh, limit cross-contamination, and we have a number of contingency plans in place for if something were to occur. Um, Scott, you anything to add to that about COVID and, and, uh, and cannabis? Yeah, so, you know, we were deemed essential from the beginning, which meant that we needed to develop those plans and protocols. And um, our, our lab manager, Darren, he came up with a, uh, he, he worked with the president, Mike, to, um, to come up with uh, teams that could be rotated and not come in contact with each other so as to prevent against the potential for uh, a, a, an outbreak in the laboratory. And then we came up with sanitation protocols and uh, infectious disease management protocols <clears throat> that filled in all the gaps around, um, you know, making sure everything is cleaned on a certain schedule. Uh, there's a there's a, a health questionnaire screening. There's temperature monitoring. There's a whole host of things. A, a tremendous a full time job for a couple of months worth of things that we've put in place to. Um, uh, even goes going so far as to put UV filters that that kill virus in our HVAC and other filters in our um, our air conditioners um, that that kill the virus and uh, providing PPE and and basically monitoring on a daily basis as things develop. It's a whole new world now, isn't it? Um, I mean, I never thought I'd ever be a germaphobe, uh, but I've certainly learned about it now. Um, and again, I have a lot more respect for uh, people like yourselves, the scientists that are out there working so hard on trying to find a vaccine and, and, and figure out a way that we can actually get back to what was normal three and a half months ago. And uh, now we're accepting our new normal. Um, has it impacted uh, any of your research or any of your testing like that? It sounds like you've protected the employees, your fellow employees. But what about the tests? Um, there was there was a close call where we utilize um, reagents that are produced by one of our suppliers. That supplier also supplies um, products to people that are doing antibody testing and uh, virus testing. So there was a disruption in their supply chain, but we were able to to get through it okay. So to answer your question honestly, we have not had. Um, our ability to perform the assays that we do impacted yet. Uh, but it has been a challenge for um, our team, Dan and Dan's efforts initiatives. He's got multiple initiatives that he's working on right now. And because of the scheduling and our protocols, um, it, it has introduced a delay into some of those things. I wanna not switch gears so much, but I wanna focus a little bit on, on CBD. 
Um, you know, a lot of people see this, one of these cannabinoids in just about everything, whether it's on the side of the road at a gas station or it could be um, at, a, at another store. Let's just leave it at that. Um, you guys are just looking for CBD in relation to THC. You're not testing hemp products. Those are all going to Pennsylvania, correct? So you don't have to be a hemp product to be high in CBD. They do have medical strains that are um, CBD one. dominant. Right, two to one, or I, I've used one to one, I've used two to one, yeah. So you guys are doing that. Yes, but we're also like, we're involved with the laboratory down there. We're, we're a part of the science team that gets spread across the laboratories. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> to your point, um, our laboratory down there received CBD socks. Wait, 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 wait. CBD socks, like red socks, like red socks, white socks? Yes. That's a clothing item, right? I mean, I, I, I want to make sure I, I'm clear on this. Somebody put CBD in wearable socks. Okay. And, and they, they wanted us to test them for potency. And, and, and did you, I don't even know, I'm guessing that's a shock to you guys. I've come to a place of acceptance. Okay. Fair enough. Somebody's, Somebody's willing to, to, to pay you to do the test. You do your job, right? I mean, it's a business, right? <laughs> That's crazy. Um, I do want to get one more serious thing here. Recently, um, I was reading a Canadian law article. There is a new lawsuit in Canada against some of the bigger manufacturers, your Tilrays, your Canopies, your Auroras, about the plastic, the container uh, in some of these CBD products that, that gets the CBD gets affected by the plastic. Does, is this something, have you heard this before, that uh, how impactful the, the container can be to any of these, um, whether it's a tincture or a water-soluble product, and how plastic can impact that? Does that sound like anything? Dan? <laughs> I can't really see any reason why it would. I would argue more so that it seems like that would be a result of improper storage. Um, so, you know, you obviously want to keep your cannabis stored at a reasonable temperature or else it's going to change. It, the chemical profile will change if you don't store it correctly. Um, what do you think, Scott? I think um, depending on what you're packaging and what the the material, so there's what's being packaged and then there's the packaging material. <clears throat> as long as you're using uh, packaging material that is compatible and suitable for that product, you should not have an issue. So um, I would need to know more about the particular instance because you could have you could have a situation where certain uh, compositions of matrix could be uh, incompatible with the packaging that they're in, but I'm speculating on that. What would you guys, there's tons of regulations out there, there's tons of compliance. Is there one thing or two things out there that you'd like to see change to either get better testing or make your jobs easier? You go first, Sam. Yeah, something I would like to see is um, Massachusetts really played it on the safe side with pesticides. There's not good toxicological data out there to determine what is a dangerous level of pesticides. So Massachusetts played it safe and made the, the permissible limit 10 parts per billion. That's the lowest limit in uh, the U.S. 
And it's very hard to hit that limit with um, modern technology, modern analytical instrumentation. Something I would like to see is have them expand that list beyond just nine analytes. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of pesticides out there. Why are we only looking for nine? Um, so I would like to see them expand that list and put the permissible limits to a more reasonable level that we can more reliably measure the target and uh, help people determine whether the product is safe or not. Um, so if you ban just nine or 11 pesticides, the first thing the grower is going to do is think about using one of those other 100 or 1,000 pesticides because we'll never detect it. <laughs> I get that. Anything to add? Uh, you got anything else to add to that, Scott? Yes, 14 pesticides. The CCC today announced that they're adding 14 pesticides to our panel. Um, so that should be coming to uh, theaters near you. Um, <clears throat> what I would like to see is um, in addition to, um, or this, this would feed into what Dan said, but it's, it's an overall overarching thought. My thought would be that um, the regulators employ independent uh, technical specialists to um, review and analyze data, to um, to constantly look at their regulations and and revisit them and make sure that they're appropriate. I think they should be living documents that uh, or living um, guidances that should respond to what the consumer what what's in the best interest of the consumer because. All of, any, any money spent on testing should be providing the value of, you know, offering the best way to ensure the quality and safety and label claims as possible. So we don't want to, like, for example, if, if we've been testing for five years and nobody has ever seen one of the things that we're supposed to be screening for, we might want to revisit that screen and you know, we also might want to be looking at data that suggests we maybe we should be looking at a different target um, contaminant and so forth. I just think a data-based approach that that evolves over time would make the most sense. Spoken like true scientists that both of you are, and uh, I certainly appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me and 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 dumbing down this conversation a little bit for for me, just because. Uh, as I talk about a lot on my show, the limit of my scientific knowledge is pretty much dissecting that frog in 10th grade, and I never went back after that. <laughs> so Scott Churchill and Dan Hughes from MCR Labs, I thank you very much for taking the time out and joining me on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And remember, everybody, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We Talk Now, We Talk News, and In the Weeds are all available on most major podcast distributors like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our friends at clnsmedia.com and our flagship, cannabis.net. So subscribe, share, and like our videos on all the social media networks out there, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Weed Tube, and YouTube. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first.
PR. Pro Cannabis Media.